Thank you. Hi, my name's Rick, and I'm an alcoholic. Jeez, it looks like they were looking for a better speaker. Uh, I got a few people sitting by the panic door back there. If this gets too boring, they're going to eject, I think. Anyway, um, I'm supposed to talk uh, on anything I want to talk about because I'm up here at the front. Uh, the the uh, thing says in the, the brochure uh, that 24 hours is all that God makes time in. And if you think about it, that's true. Uh, but I have a problem with projecting. I think maybe a few of us in this room do too. We uh, project things long before they they occur. There's a guy that I listen to called Don M a lot, and he talks about a. There was this guy that it was a traveling salesman, and he was uh, going out in the Midwest. Had rented a car, and he got out in the middle of a cornfield on this long two-lane highway and uh, had a flat tire, and he went to the back of the rental car to look and had everything to change it, but it didn't have a jack. So he started, he saw way off in the distance a light of a farmhouse, and he started walking up there, and he got a little ways, and he said, you know, what if I get up there and that guy don't have a jack? And he keeps walking a little bit, and he says, hmm, what if I get up there and there's nobody home? And he keeps walking a little bit ways, and he says, what I, what if I get up there in the guy's home and he's got a jack and he won't let me use it I walks a little farther and he said what if I, I got, get up there and the guy's got a jack he lets me use it and I get back there and won't fit the car and pretty soon he finds himself and he's thinking these things all the way up there and he gets to the porch of the farmhouse and a light comes on and this old farmer opens the screen door and he's got one of his old stocking caps on like they used to have and he says, can I help you, sir? And the guy looks at him and says, I didn't want to borrow your damn jack anyway. So that, that's what happens when, when, when I project. I get all bent out of shape about something and it doesn't ever occur. Most of the time, all of the things that I conjure up in my brain, the bad outcomes and all don't occur. So I guess the, 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 the perfection of spiritual walk is to live in the moment all the time. I ain't there yet. I got a little ways to go. My home group is uh, Central Orlando uh, AA. Uh, I've been sober since September 7, 1997. Um, And I found a way of living that's replaced my way of living. My way of living was kind of a a mishmash of of whatever happened next. Uh, And it seemed to be the right idea at the time. I was born in uh, Gainesville, Florida, and grew up um, around there until I was about 11 years old. Then we moved to St. Augustine, middle-income family. Uh, somewhere along the way, uh, I decided that uh, I was different than everybody else. When everybody else uh, knew what to do in junior high and high school, I didn't. I missed the meeting where they discussed how to be a nice, popular guy. And that was a conception of myself. No matter what happened, I knew that I was different than everybody else. I didn't fit in. Until there was this one day when I was 17 years old, senior in St. Augustine High School. The, uh, is there anybody named Bill Bissett or Larry Davis in the audience? 
Bill B. and Larry D. Uh, and I went out to a little uh, place on the intercoastal waterway they call Fisherman Island in St. Augustine. And we had uh, two bottles of uh, Boone's Farm apple wine. And Bill Bissett was the president of the senior class, and Larry Davis was, no, Larry Davis was president of the senior class, and Bill Bissett was the captain of the football team, and me. Uh, we went out there, and I wanted so much to be fit in. So they started drinking, and they would sip on that apple wine, and I grabbed the other one, other bottle, and I downed it pretty, pretty quickly just to prove something. And pretty soon uh, I got to where I could talk with those guys and I felt comfortable. Matter of fact, by the end of the evening, I felt sorry for those guys that they couldn't be like me, you know. And that uh, that uh, I'd found a way to fit in. Well, that's that's where it started. And, and every chance I got, you know, I felt bad the next day like a lot of us do. But a few weeks later, I had a chance to fit in again. And then I got to University of Florida, and I, I uh, joined a fraternity, and I fit in a lot there. <laughs> Every chance I get to fit in, I fit in. But the problem was that when I when I wasn't drinking, I was this, this guy that was filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. Some of it, some of it uh, justified, but most of it not. Most of it was this thing I was talking about where I projected. If I and and in the past I wish I'd have said something and. In the future, I was trying to figure out what I was going to say. But when I started drinking, I knew exactly what to say, when to say it. Uh, a lot of my friends around could gauge the, the quantity, the quality of the party by how messed up Rick got. And, and I became a periodic. So through school, I'd study for real hard for a while, and then I'd, I'd get to a point where... Uh, I just blow it out. I just have a weekend where I'd, I'd go crazy. And that kind of happened off and on. Then I went out and uh, became a, I got a degree in medical technology and went to work in a, a laboratory in a hospital in Norman Beach. And again, every chance I got to, to fit in, I would. In the daytime, it was like, you know, Clark Kent and Superman, you know. Clark Kent would be this mild-mannered, quiet, shy, introverted, scared human being. And then Superman would come out somewhere around 5.30 on Friday afternoon. And uh, uh, then my bouts started getting a little bit closer together. Um, I met a girl at the University of Florida, and uh, we started dating through this time. And for some reason, she married me uh, in 1977. And uh, we've been married since then, but that's only through the grace of God in this program, I'm sure. Uh, went to uh, University of Florida as an undergraduate, like I said. Then I tried to get in medical school and uh, was able to get in in a little country called Grenada. I uh, went to the first year of medical school in Grenada. And uh, uh, we had, there wasn't anything to do in Grenada except for go to school, study, uh, work out and drink. That was the four main things that we did. It, okay. She said it's about the same at every medical school. The only difference is we didn't have television. That's the only difference. So, uh, so I'll tell you one story that's funny now, but 
looking back on it at the time, the next day after it happened, it wasn't very funny. As you know, in Grenada in the early 80s, it was run by a communist dictatorship, and they had a bunch of Cuban uh, soldiers building an airport on the island of Grenada. And the, the St. George's University that had a medical school had a, uh, uh, two campuses, one campus near town and one campus out toward the mountains on a point of land on the southern part of the island. And to get the, between the two, you either had to take one of these rickety old taxis around, and it took about, it was about five miles, or you could walk it about a mile and a half if you went across the airport that they were building. So one night we were at one campus, and we went to a place called the Sugar Mill, and every campus in the world has a sugar mill near it. It was an old converted sugar mill that they made a, a bar out of, and, and we left after a, a lengthy period of time at the bar. We left and went across the airport to the to walk to home to the other campus. And somewhere along the way, me and two of my friends got the bright idea that it would be a fun thing to uh, crank up and drive around in uh, one of these big Soviet-made Land Rovers, Land Movers that were there on the campus. So we uh, we we got it fired up, but we couldn't get it in gear. Thank God. And so uh, we uh, we made it to campus after we were escorted off the uh, the premises by uh, armed Cuban soldiers, and, and we decided that that wasn't a good idea to do the next day. But it was things like that 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 looking back that were you know maybe comical and that kind of thing that that romanticized what my drinking time was. But most of my drinking was just tacky. It was it was one period after another of being just just tacky. You know, usually it involved throwing up on somebody, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, and uh, I got kicked out of a lot of places. So here I am on one side of the coin. I'm in medical school and studying hard to become a physician that I always wanted to be, and on the other side, this other part of me that wanted desperately to fit in and was willing to go to any length to do it, and I found a way to fit in with alcohol. Uh, that lasted into uh, the late 80s and when I got my degree and went to family practice residency. And um, I uh, figured out a way to curb alcoholism. There is a way to curb alcoholism other, other than Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's pharmaceutical-grade narcotics. And uh, a lot of us have tried the narcotics cure. Uh, that lasted for a little while until absolutely I got hooked on narcotics and and what my life was then was I'd be shaking off the narcotics and I'd say you know I'm never going to do this again if I can just drink a little beer a few beers every now and then I'll be all right so I'd shake that off and I'd go back to drinking and then I'd be coming off a bad drunk where I'd again puked on somebody and and I would say you know when I was taking those pills I didn't have all this trouble so I'd go back to the pills, and, and it was bouncing back till I finally found myself uh, uh, in that incomprehensible demoralization that it talks about in the big book. And uh, I went to my wife, who figured out something was going on, and I told her I needed some help. So uh, she took me to a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a preacher, and I did the, uh, the group therapy sessions uh, that were supposed to cure me. And that lasted for a while. The uh, group therapy was was productive in that I learned a lot. 
I didn't change my behavior, but I learned a lot. I learned about the disease of alcoholism and how it affected people and, and the, the phenomenon of craving that it talks about. And, and I could understand all that, but I didn't, it didn't change anything that I was doing on the inside. The, the thing that saved me was that the psychologist who ran the group therapy had a wife. And his wife was not a therapist, but she had about 15 years of sobriety in AA. And she'd take me aside after the meetings and she'd say, Rick, you can talk all that BS in here all you want to, but you need to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Well, it got that bad. It got to where um, I couldn't show up for work most Monday mornings. I uh, uh, was uh, lying to my wife, lying to everybody around, and that dichotomy of, of who I wanted to be in my mind and who I was kept getting farther and farther apart. And it took an awful lot of emotional energy to keep that together. It's been said it's kind of like having a couple of inflated beach balls and being up to your waist in the shallow end of the pool and trying to keep those beach balls underwater. Uh, I guess it's possible, but it takes an awful lot of energy to do that. Uh, and after a while of doing that, just to get her off my case, I went to an AA meeting. And my perception of Alcoholics Anonymous was... Uh, not what I found in AA. What I found was a, a couple of guys. The first meeting I went to, there wasn't but about three or four guys in there. And, and they accepted me and they said, keep coming back. You're in the right place. Of course, I didn't think I was in the right place. So for the next couple of years, I audited AA. Has anybody audited AA? You go and you sit in the back and you come in a little late and you leave early. Just like in college, I audited a couple of courses in college. You don't have to take the test. You don't have to worry about a grade. And you can leave any time. And uh, again, I, I learned a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous. And then uh, came the time where that dichotomy of, of who I wanted to be and who I was got so big that it broke. And I said the prayer that a lot of us say. I was in my truck uh, parked in the parking lot on September 7th, 1997, and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. If you're really there, I need your help. Now, I brought up in the Southern Baptist Church, so I had a lot of religion. I had a whole lot of religion. But evidently, I believe that this is a disease of perception because whatever I heard in the church got to my brain but it didn't get to my heart i've got a big family i've got four brothers and two or three of those guys sat in the same pews that i did their whole life and they heard the message they heard about a power greater than themselves that could could assist them and help them with their troubles they heard that that there was love out there and there was there was peace and comfort and serenity i didn't hear that i heard the other side of the coin about somebody waiting out there to get me, and if I did this, I was I was done for. So that perception kept up, and when they when they started talking about a power greater than myself, before I said that prayer in my truck, I thought, you know, I've got God, and God ain't done anything for me so far. But when I said that prayer, something happened. It wasn't a 
uh, blowing wind like Bill Wilson talks about. It wasn't a burning bush, but there was some kind of peace that came over me that told me that it was going to be all right. Uh, three days later, through some other uh, God intervening events, I was in a treatment center, stayed there for 28 days. And there's a lot of debate about treatment centers, whether you know they help or not. It helped me. It took me out of society long enough to have a good look at the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started practicing what it said in the big book. I picked it up, I read it, I got some tapes, I became a student of it, and I started applying it and doing what it told me to do. I got a, uh, uh, when I got back, I got a sponsor. Uh, I started working the steps. I worked one through nine the best I could. I live today on 10, 11, and 12 the best I can. Every now and then I get do a, uh, inventory and try to keep things out of the way as much as I can. And that's the way my spiritual journey has been. It hasn't been in the constant moving forward variety. It's been in the herky-jerky variety. That's where I take two steps forward and one step back. I do something completely off the wall, stupid, and then I say, okay, God, I messed up. What can we do about it to change it and move on? Uh, I uh, go to meetings regularly. I try to uh, help people when I can as far as uh, newcomers and that kind of thing. But I still have this problem that I talked about beginning with about expecting things to happen that don't really happen. Uh, it was I heard in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, false expectations, um, we've heard about it in several different ways, False expectations is like if you went up on the roof with a box of marbles and you got a piece of paper, a legal piece of paper, and you drew a line down the middle of it and you wrote over on one half of the paper in one column up and you wrote on the other column down. And then you got one of those marbles and held it off the side of the building and let it go. And if it went down, you marked it over in the down column. And if it went up, you marked it over in the up column. And you held them out there one at a time and let them go. And every time one went up, you marked it in the up column. And when it went down, you marked it in the down column. Well, pretty soon, if you're sane, you recognize a pattern. Uh, and, of course, the joke is the key to serenity is figuring out the pattern before you lose all your marbles. But the, the, the take-home message is much deeper than that. For alcoholics, particularly for me, I'll hold that 837th marble out there saying, this one's going to fly. This one's the one that's going to fly. Instead of accepting life and people as they are and changing them through action, I try to change people through wishful thinking and, and, um, and uh, worrying about it, projecting, and that kind of thing. And it gets me nowhere pretty much. So that my spiritual growth in Alcoholics Anonymous has been one where I take a few steps forward, I go through spiritual growth times, and for some reason my mind goes on holiday and uh, I'll cruise. And as a lot of us have figured out, cruising in Alcoholics Anonymous is really going backwards. You can't cruise. you got to either keep going and keep being challenged or you start going backwards. You start, I, I can tell, I have an internal barometer when I know that I'm, I'm getting off beam. And some of you guys might, and ladies may, may, uh, 
have done this too. You're at a meeting somewhere and you, somebody's getting ready to speak and you say, I know what that son of a gun's going to say. He said it the last 13 times that he talked. He's going to say it again this time. He's going to talk about his wife and how she was sick and that kind of thing. Or she's going to do this or that. And so you've projected what they're going to say. And then you look over at the other guy over there. He, he's just coming to these meetings because he wants to meet a girl. You know, he, he knows he wants to meet a girl. You know he wants to meet. Everybody knows. It. So you start projecting and you start judging. That's how I know that I'm getting stale in AA. So I've got to change something then. I've got to change what I do. I've got to change the meetings I go to. I've got to change the people that I hang around with. I've got to go back and start going over to the newcomer when he comes in and shaking his hand and telling him it's going to be all right and uh, helping him out. I've got to go to jail meetings. I've got to do all these things or else I get stagnant. And when I get stagnant, that's dangerous because I start thinking that maybe, just maybe I overreacted to this deal. You know, now seven years ago, when I got back from a treatment center, I was so beat up and I was so hungry for this deal. You couldn't have pried me away from the clubhouse or doing stuff with a crowbar. And I like to I like to go back to that every now and then. I see it in the face of a newcomer. But I like to go back consciously to remember what it was when I was first sober. And I didn't have any clutter in my brain. I didn't have all these high-class problems I had I have today. I had that pure need to have God tell me what to do and then go do it. And every now and then that gets lost in the, in the hustle and bustle of what we do. I've got to get back to that pure essence of Alcoholics Anonymous where the only way that I can stay sober and improve my relationship to the God of my understanding is by getting out of this brain and doing something to help another alcoholic. And if I do that, it works every time. Every time I've tried it, it works. It talks in the, the big book, in the tenth step, about uh, a simple formula. When we stray off the path, we admit our faults, we discuss it with somebody else, we talk to God about it, and then we go do something to help a newcomer. And every time I've done that, it's worked. It's got me back on the beam. But, you know, I can slip off that beam at any time for any reason. The good news is, that there's always, always something that I can go back to and, and start over again. There's a, 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 a thing that we used to do. I told this story the other day. When I was a kid in St. in Williston before we moved to St. Augustine, we lived in the country and we had these huge oak trees in our backyard. We had about two acres of, of land with a small house on it. And my brothers and I love to, to swing on swings on these oak trees. And we get a croaker sack and put some dirt in it and tie it with a, a big heavy rope and throw it around one of the limbs, the tall limbs of the oak tree. And we get up in the crook of the oak tree and we climb up and we'd swing that swing out there. And when it came back, we'd jump out for it, grab it and put it between our legs and swing way out and way back. And it was exhilarating. It was fantastic. And it's one of those memories of youth I have that were immensely satisfying. Another is fishing, but we'll talk about that later. But anyway, we would do that, and 
The problem was if you missed and didn't wrap your toes, your legs around that croaker sack when it when you grabbed a rope, your legs would miss it and you drag your toenails on the dirt when it when you came when you swung out and that would hurt. But if you if you missed it and you yelled do over right away, then that meant that the next guy in line had to wait for you to do it over again. Now, if, now if he if he yelled out no do overs when you missed first, then you didn't have to do it. Then you couldn't do it over. So it was a if you were next in line, you had a keen eye on if that guy missed it in front of you, so you could get the swing next. And he had a keen eye to yell as soon as he missed that that bag, he would yell do over. Well, Alcoholics Anonymous is a deal where you don't have to yell to get a do-over. You can do a do-over anytime. That's the beauty of this program, is you get an infinite amount of do-overs to do it better. Now, it doesn't give you an excuse to, to keep screwing up on purpose, but it, when you do screw up, and I screw up daily to get off of that beam that we talk about, I have an infinite amount of, my, my God isn't so much in favor of perfection as he is persistence. So anytime during the day I can get a do-over if I've screwed up. And that's a great comfort. Then I don't have to project so much. Then I have to don't go in the future so much. I can live right now in the moment emotionally. I've got to think about what I've got to do the rest of the day and tomorrow and next week and my practice and that kind of thing. But emotionally, I can stay right where I am now. If I know that at any moment, I can get right back on the beam. I can call up somebody. I can, I can talk at a meeting. I can chair a meeting. I can do all those things that I talked about before. And I'm right back there spiritually where God wants me to be. Uh, maybe not down the road far enough to suit me, but as long as I'm on the road, I'm on the road pointing in the right direction, I can get there. So anyway, it's been a, it's been a, uh, great journey for me, and I, uh, I've met some wonderful people along the way, and, uh, some people that, that I want what they have. I want the kind of serenity that allows them to live comfortably inside their own skin, and know when, the biggest, thing that I uh, that I like is that I admire is somebody that in a meeting and you all have people in these meetings that you go to where when they say something everybody in the room kind of is quiet and listens to what they say because they're so profound and they don't waste any words they 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 have the essence of AA in them and Chuck and I were talking about that before. There's been a few people along the way where when they talk, you listen to them, and, and they can tell you more in, in eight words than somebody that gets up here and talks for 40 minutes. The other thing that Chuck told me once when I was speaking is, and giving a lead is that always when you're finished, quit talking. So I'm about finished, and so I'm going to quit talking. Thanks for letting me come talk to you, and have a rest, good rest of the day, and enjoy your stay in Orlando. Thanks.